From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Connor Kurek. And I'm Elise Hammond. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Coming up, I'll give you all the details on the no wall, no ban protest that took place last Wednesday, February 1st. One of our reporters also sits down for a conversation with Kim Reynolds, one of the organizers. Another reporter will also start a three-part series dedicated to informing Ohio University and the Athens community on what to expect from the final four candidates in the running for president. He, he was very demanding in his role as president, and that's what the Board of Regents expected of him okay. uh, to be, was very demanding. There's a difference in bullying and being very demanding. You know, he got a lot of things done during his tenure here at the University of New Mexico. And one was retention of freshmen, and two, our graduation rate. And those are two of the most important things in public universities. We'll give you all the details and more coming up right here on The Outlet. Ohio University's 21st president will be decided between four final candidates after months of a nationwide search process. As a three-part series from our reporter David Lee, this week's report will put a spotlight on President Dean Bresciani of North Dakota State University and former President Robert Frank of the University of New Mexico. Two of the candidates came to OU having weathered recent controversies surrounding their leadership style. Both have had controversies last year that may have influenced their decisions to seek out the presidency at OU. Dean Bresciani has held high administrative positions in Tier 1 universities, universities ranking in the top 50 in the country. Following his posts as the Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs at the University of North Carolina and the Vice President for Student Affairs at Texas A&M University, Bresciani landed the presidency at North Dakota State University in 2010. Last spring, the State Board of Higher Education put Bresciani's contract extension on hold, citing a lack in communication, advancements in research, teamwork, and compliance with the state technology law. Then, on August 12th, the board hired a private investigator to look into possible violations of board policies and ethics. The trouble started with a new contract in April of last year with Radio FM Media to broadcast the university's football and men's basketball games. Radio FM Media sought to include provisions restricting access to other news outlets, also looking to provide coverage of games. Publicly, Bresciani rejected the provisions after public outcry. But emails and text messages obtained through open records requests by various parties apparently show that Bresciani initially supported the restricted access and criticized those who opposed the new guidelines. I guess we're left with two conclusions. Either he's lying or he didn't actually know what the rules were and was just sort of blindly backing his staff and wasn't bothering to even look into what the basis of of the controversy was. Frankly, I don't think either of those those two scenarios are very flattering for Mr. Bershani. That was Rob Port, a political blogger who describes himself as the most outspoken and consistent critic of Bresciani's leadership. While Bresciani didn't have many friends among state Republican lawmakers who took part in the open records request, faculty and students of the university backed their president. Dennis Cooley, the president of the faculty senate during the probe into Bresciani, has no doubt the controversy was politically motivated. This year, we did a resolution in favor of the president in which we had 81% of the faculty who responded, an enormous rate, back the president against the State Board of Higher Education. 
In the end, the State Board of Higher Education's investigation into Bresciani concluded that he did not lie about being confused on the details of the controversial media guidelines when he sent texts and emails that seemed to support Radio FM Media holding exclusive coverage rights of the games. The board renewed Bresciani's contract until June 2018. Unlike Bresciani, Robert Frank has been in the health field and not higher education for most of his professional career. After serving as a dean at the University of Florida, where he established the College of Public Health, Frank worked five years as a provost for academic affairs at Kent State University before becoming president at the University of New Mexico. Frank's tenure at the University of New Mexico by some accounts did not go smoothly. It came to its climax when the Board of Regents hired an investigator to assess whether Frank and his leadership style created a quote-unquote hostile working environment. The Albuquerque Journal obtained the report on Frank initiated by the Board of Regents. It cited university staff members finding Frank to be quote-unquote condescending, sarcastic, and even bullying. But others in the report dispute those characterizations. He, he was very demanding in his role as president, and that's what the Board of Regents expected of him. Okay. Uh, to be was very demanding. There's a difference in bullying and being very demanding. You know, mm-hmm. he got a lot of things done during his tenure here at the University of New Mexico. And one was retention of freshmen and two, our graduation rate. And those are two of the most important things in public universities. That was Jack Fortner, the longest serving member on the Board of Regents. Fortner makes the point that university presidents receive exceptional scrutiny from the state and its media. You're under a microscope, and small things become big things. And, you know, he was a very effective president. Did he make mistakes? Sure. But I think he's learned from them and is going to be a very good president wherever he goes. The two candidates visited OU's campus last month with different situations at their last universities. Bresciani continues to act as president in Fargo, North Dakota, and Frank stepped down as president in Albuquerque, New Mexico, after a compromising agreement with the Board of Regents stopped Frank from suing the university and the regents. For The Outlet, this is David Lee. More than 70 students were arrested February 1st during the No Wall, No Ban protest. But students weren't the only ones joining in. In the crowd were university faculty and local families. They shared one main goal, protect immigrant students from the recent ban. I spoke with some of those taking part in the march. It's 32 degrees and raining. But that's not keeping protesters from chanting, photographers from taking pictures, and bystanders from watching all the action. First, they rallied in front of the city hall. Next, they marched against traffic on Court Street. Finally, they sat in Baker in protest of President Trump's immigration ban. The main goal? Get Ohio University to declare itself a sanctuary campus. A sanctuary campus does not share students' immigration status and does not allow immigration and customs enforcement officers on campus. It also prohibits campus police from collaborating with federal immigration authorities. Among those protesting, members of the community and Ohio University faculty. I think it shows that at Ohio University we have a significant portion of the student body uh, and the faculty and uh, the staff that are very concerned about the direction the country is headed. 
that uh, are very concerned about the rise in hate crimes and discrimination against various communities that are uh, minorities or a threat of violence. And they're speaking out uh, to uh, government officials and they're also speaking out to the university administration. That was Ziad Aburish, a history professor at OU. Ziad came to the States from Pakistan 20 years ago. He said he was at the protest representing himself, not any part of the university. Although we should be clear that there were a lot of faculty members out there today uh, from a variety of departments and colleges. The march attracted folks outside of the university community as well. Michael Riggins is an elementary teacher in Nelsonville. His wife and children came with him to Athens to join the protest. How many amendments are being broken here? Uh, let's see, there's the 14th Amendment. There's some of the First Amendment, since there's a ban on basically uh, religion, even though they're going to say it's not about religion. Uh, Islam is a religion, so they're not letting people in because based on their religion. Uh, and then there's the 14th Amendment, where you have the right to um, due process, life, liberty, all that good stuff. That's being limited. It should not be done. Michael came because he said it was the right thing to do. He believes his children deserve better. And while it's not clear if OU will take steps to declare itself a sanctuary campus, what is clear is the protests sent a strong message to those at OU impacted by the ban. You are not alone. We have Syrians, Yemenis, Sudanese, uh, Somalis, Libyans, Iraqis, Iranians in uh, at Ohio University at the faculty level, staff level, and student level. And it's important for those people to know that we stand in solidarity with them. Reynolds, one of the protest organizers, sat down with Liam Nehemiah to discuss what will happen in the following days for those who were arrested. Hey everyone, this is Liam Nehemiah and welcome back to The Outlet. Today on the show we have Kim Reynolds, one of the organizers of the Baker University Center protest that saw 70 protesters arrested by Ohio University Police Department. And she's also the media liaison for the protesters as they um, go through court arraignments. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So with the 70 protesters that were arrested, tell tell us a little bit about what's happening to them now. Because I know that um, some of them were going through arraignments today in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah, so after everyone was charged on Wednesday, February 1st, uh, they're ch- they charged with uh, criminal trespassing, which is a fourth degree misdemeanor. Um, and the court date was actually set pretty quickly. It's It was the Monday following, so today the 6th. Um, so yeah, um, I think they split it up half and half. So half of the arrested were had arraignments today, and then half are going through that process on Thursday. Um, today, a lot of supporters came to what we call court support, so to support those who were arrested and just be there in presence, bring food, uh, kind of have a sense of community and support for these people who were arrested. Um, However, we were kicked out of the court uh, due to overcrowding. Um, So we kind of demonstrated outside, just had our signs, but what essentially happened is that everyone was arraigned individually, which is 
I'm told is uh, a little unconventional. Usually people in large groups are processed all together. But many different people took different avenues. Some people just filed their paperwork individually, which means that they will accept the charges and pay later. And they didn't necessarily need to be in court today. Some people will plead not guilty, which means they go through a trial on the grounds that perhaps criminal trespassing is not an appropriate uh, citation. Um, because in some interpretations, the student center can be seen as student property considering tuition dollars are, are, are allocated to the upkeep of Baker Center. So some people will fight it. It's all kind of on an individual basis. There's not necessarily a group consensus on what is happening. Each people people can choose to be represented, represented uh, collectively or kind of do their own individual thing. I talked with uh, Vice President of Student Affairs, Jason Pena. Mm-hmm earlier this week. And um, one of the things that he was mentioning is that the administration didn't make an appearance because the administration couldn't deliver the demands or couldn't give a actual change to the demands that you guys were making, one of them being sanctuary, having a sanctuary campus, OU becoming a sanctuary campus. They couldn't make those changes overnight, which was one, one of the reasons why the administration did not make an appearance. What do you necessarily um, think of that sentiment? I would just say, in response to that, that this is a direct action and that uh, we understand that we are pushing the university to make changes. That is the whole point. We understand that um, perhaps Ohio University is not a sanctuary campus. We are pushing for it to happen. Um, But the sentiment that they did not show up because they couldn't do anything just completely... I I see that as an invalid response considering someone still made the call um, to make arrests. And and, and that also goes back to lack of transparency. If that was made known to us, perhaps uh, it wouldn't have resulted in arrests. But it was not made known to any single person um, from any administrator that nothing could be done. I think the situation could have been easily avoided had they communicated that during the sit-in, that these demands can't be met. However, uh, another kind of notion of the student is to demand negotiation. Had someone shown up and say, hey, we cannot fulfill these demands, but we can start to work on what this would look like, that would have sufficed, you know? So it's, I just think that that is a, is a kind of, um, it's just not kind of good enough at this point. So many people were arrested and someone could have prevented that by just saying that we would, we can make negotiations while we don't have the infrastructure right now. Okay, cool. Well, Kim, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. The recent opening of Jefferson Market on Ohio University's East Green offers new eating options for residents. The outlets Reagan McCurley and Matt Morris tell us how the market fits today's culinary and dining trends. Jefferson Market is the newest culinary destination on campus that aims to meet the needs of the community. Its market format is designed to serve the diverse patterns of the 21st century consumer. It is located conveniently on campus and has a variety of foods that aim to fulfill the different tastes of everyone. Mark Brutton is the Assistant Director of Auxiliaries Marketing and Communication for OU's Culinary Services. He points out an innovation that helps make the market more convenient for today's tech-savvy shopper. So, and a really cool aspect is you can order online. For the first time in any of our venues, you can actually uh, place an order on your mobile phone or on, uh, on the website um, and choose when you want it, and it will be ready for you when you come in. 
Jefferson Market's general manager, Don Jackson, said the new market fills the shopping void for all kinds of people. Health-conscious shoppers, international students, commuter students, faculty and staff, as well as residents who live in the area, can find options that fit their culinary habits. Jackson made it clear that although the market has salads and sandwiches, it is not a dining hall. The dining halls are the dining halls. You're still going to go to the dining halls and eat, but what's that alternative if I don't want to go to the dining hall? Uh, maybe I want to come here and I want to buy some um, produce and make my own salad at home. Am I able to do that? Am I able to do that in the dorm room? Yes, you are now. Some students see the new market as competition to the dining halls. Angel Cup is a student majoring in special education. She thinks students are trending away from the dining halls and says she would rather eat food from a market. I think the markets have like better options than the dining hall and it's like not mass produced and it's made to order so it's more like personalized. Brunton sees Jefferson Market as the university partnering with the community. The competition isn't about the food or the local dollar but for students. Our market are those students and we want to provide the best experience that we can at the most affordable prices that we can as well. Jefferson Market is breaking new ground in college food services by meeting the needs of students and staff who may not be in favor of the dining halls, by accommodating people living in the fast lane, or by accommodating to people who simply want to eat alone. For the outlet, I'm Reagan McCurley. The outlet's Brooke Donahue covers how having a local community action program for needed goods and services benefits the community and brings them together. Ohio's Appalachian counties are rural areas that make it hard for many to find access to everyday goods and services. That's why having a resource such as Hawking, Athens, Perry Community Action, or HAPCAP is important to citizens in need of its help. HAPCAP is the only food bank for a 10-county region in southeast Ohio. They act as a distribution center for food that comes from the government, donations, or is purchased. From there, they give their food to pantries, soup kitchens, and meal sites where food goes directly to those in need. Development and Community Relations Coordinator for HAPCAP, Austi Payne, talks about how the community comes together to help them in their process. We have the Commodity Supplemental Food Program that relies very heavily on volunteers. We don't have the staff capacity to pack them through staff, and so it's really vital and important that we do have that community support, and they've always shown up and helped us. While community members play a big role in operations of the food bank, they're also an important part of the program because they may be the ones receiving the resources. Connie Huff, a citizen that utilizes food banks, spoke about why she thought having a food bank was an important function of the community. Most of the people that go to these food banks are on a fixed income, low income. So, you know, when your money's getting low, comes in handy. Many people in HAPCAP's 10-county region are supplied with the goods that they need from the program or from one of its member agencies. And it's clear the community plays a substantial role in the bringing together of people to help one another. Aussie had some important words about the community. I think people realize that hunger can happen to anyone. Hunger looks like you and me. It can happen at any time and I think people really get behind that and understand that and so always want to help out in any way that they can. For the outlet, I'm Brooklyn Donahue. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is co-produced and co-hosted this week by me, Connor Keurig, and Elise Hammond. We're edited by Atish Baidia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. 
Adam Rich is our technical assistant. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to the outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes or find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at outlet underscore woub. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.